Welcome to the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast and Live Periscope. I am delighted today to be here with uh, John O'Brien, who's the European partner of uh, the Omnicons 100 Agency. Um, but something that he's uh, been in the industry for a long time, he's been working on things around uh, the power of purpose, which is a, he's written the book on it now, along with his colleague Andrew Cave, and we'll be talking a little bit about that. But um, what uh, the sort of really drives um, John, I think, is what how purpose drives culture and decision making in businesses. So we'll be talking about that today. Looking at some trends in social enterprise and B Corps and how that movement is growing. And then also how uh, the challenges are, can be dealt with um, in organizations for adopting a more purpose-led culture. So, uh, welcome, John. Thank you, Adam. Great to be here. Yeah. And um, so, uh, maybe to start off by just giving us a, uh, an overview of uh, your career um, which has kind of brought you to this point now. Right, okay. Well, Adam, I mean, thank you. It's, a, it's great to be here today to talk about this. Um, I think the start point, which may seem a slightly odd one, was that I spent 10 years in the Army. And when I came out of the Army, what many of my contemporaries did was head straight for the city to make their fortunes. And actually, I found that that wasn't really what I wanted. I wanted something that reflected some of the purpose and uh, some of the ethos that I'd actually experienced in the Army. So I chose to go to the not-for-profit sector and I've spent almost 25 years in the interface between charities, public sector, corporates, trying to make things happen through campaigns and initiatives that would have predominantly been called CSR. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, over the last seven to 10 years, we've seen a shift around what I'm talking about, which is the ethical purpose of the basis of the way in which organizations operate. During that period, I spent 10 years of business in the community, which will be well known to many of your um, viewers. And listeners, uh, I was director of the Prince of Wales's personal programs there, so that gave me a great privileged uh, insight across a whole spectrum mm. of his interests. And then seven years ago, I decided to leave that to set up my own agency. Uh, I was very fortunate that Prince of Wales became my first client. Uh, we grew a purpose agency over the last few years, but I've now moved that with my associates into Omnicom's 100 agency. And so that's, that's a good first client to get on the books in terms of credibility. It was helpful. Yeah. 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 Uh, opened a few doors. Um, so, so yeah. So what, obviously you've, you've written the book on it comparatively. Um, tell me what, what does, uh, purpose do to help drive the culture and decision making? Yeah. I mean, what I would say before we actually just address that possibly Mm. is just to reflect upon what's happened over the last 10 years since mm, the financial crisis because, because actually although ethical purpose has been at the heart of many people's operations and businesses, actually I think the financial crisis affected people in very different ways. Many in business thought actually we have to do something different. Mm. I don't want to be associated with the worst aspects of perhaps what had happened in various sectors. And others, when they were looking and embarking upon setting up their own businesses or becoming entrepreneurial, decided to put their purpose, an ethical-based purpose, right to the heart of what they did. Mm. So I think it was a cultural shift. And so what that has meant in terms of the environment that people have been operating in is that there's been a recognition that this is not now about CSR programs sitting on the periphery or a specialism that people can turn around and say, that's done over there by those specialists. Mm. But that actually, at the heart of the most 
potentially viable, long-term, sustainable businesses and social enterprises in that mix has to be actually why they are created in the first place. Mm. And people have wanted to really understand that better. And a lot is said about millennials coming in and people having expectations. And I think there's an element of that as well. But I also think it's slightly insulting to the baby boom generation like myself to think that none of us cared about anything beforehand. We did. You know, and so I think actually across all generations, you've got people actually wanting more scrutiny around their products, their services, their businesses, and, and how society works. So that's been the external cultural shift. Mm-hmm. I think what we've seen internally, if I look at those two, let's look at the two main groups. You've got the established businesses, be they PLCs or privately owned, mm-hmm. that have had a long-standing track record of, of being in existence and possibly being, uh, let's say, seen as good responsible citizens by doing a number of mm-hmm. sustainable programs, environmental programs, community engagement, or whatever. The leadership in many of those businesses is now like saying, let's try to get back to the core of why we exist. And let's see if we can align within our operations that clarity of purpose, the communications, the decision-making, the strategy. Because it's not disputed anymore. That is the way to drive success. That is the way that you enhance performance. So walking up the corridors in, in our own building here, I know that people are motivated and engaged on what we do because they understand why we do it. Mm. So you have that desire from established businesses to bring that back into the core. And we do a lot of advisory work in that space. And a lot of it was reflected through the book that I wrote over in the year with Andrew. And then the second aspect in terms of people starting up businesses Actually, the way that they want to recruit people, the way they want to create the culture, is going to be based on their own values. Mm-hmm. So you see great proliferation now of people setting up businesses or social enterprises or, let's say, you know, charities with a, with a sort of trading purpose mm-hmm. or whatever. Across that, those founders, those people who've decided to take a slightly different way to create value in the world, are actually wanting to build that culture based on the values that they hold dear. So they'll attract the same people. Mm. That's common sense, mm. thought, you know. And so actually that's what we're seeing in, in, in both of those. Yeah, and so what I'm hearing you say is something that's actually a, a theme of this pop, uh, series, which is game changers. That, you know, g- could you actually uh, give me a highlight, uh, one or two game changing sort of organizations or individuals yeah. that are being sort of really making a difference either within their organizations or through what they're doing to the wider business. Sure. I mean, I think that it, it's very easy to pull out names such as the likes of Paul Pogman and people like that who are renowned for actually driving the sustainability agenda through the business and thereby creating a clarity of purpose around that and seeing the advantage of that. Um, I, I won't necessarily go down the route of saying game changes as such because I think one of the things is that I, I really believe that it can be done at by anybody, Mm -hmm. on any level in the Mm organisation, within any type of Mm organisation. And I don't mean that just um, in a flippant manner. The reality is that culture is created and the way in which values are created in a business is not just a top-down approach. Mm -hmm. You know, you actually, I mean, a friend of mine has this um, analogy of how you create things within organisations, similar to making coffee. You either have a percolator that percolates the culture up, Mm. or you have a cafeteria that pushes the culture down. Well, actually, what you want is a percolator. 
You know, you want people in the organisation to feel that they are the game changers, that they don't just look to the boss to be the game changer. Yeah. And and I think that if you are the boss or if you're in a leadership position, then you know you want everybody around you to be active and thinking and engaging on the agenda in order to be the game changer. So so yes, I could cite, you know, there's tremendous examples in the book. Timothy Melgan of Paper Chase. I mean, Paper Chase, you go in there, it's an entirely creative, purpose-driven business. Edwin Booth of Booth Supermarkets has done tremendous things in the Northwest. Um, you have a you know clarity of purpose in some of the big institutions like Unilever or J and J, Johnson Johnson, and others. But then you go into see how it has driven a resurgence around Lego, where mm. you know, the company, a privately owned company like Lego, had its challenging times. You get a clarity of purpose coming back in about fostering children's imagination, and it makes things happen in a certain way. Decisions become much more simpler. People get behind that in a way that they weren't perhaps behind the company before. So there's a lot of different individuals, um, but I think the critical thing that they can do is actually to help everybody in their organisation become a game changer. Mm-hmm. That would be my approach to that. Um, Institution-wise, uh, obviously we've had in the UK things like Blueprint for Better Business, which emerged mm-hmm. out of the financial crisis. Everybody will know about that. And I think that created a very important, again, opportunity for a sort of framework of values to allow people to reflect in terms of how they might apply that type of thinking through the business. Mm-hmm. Um, we interviewed the founder of the B Corps movement in the US for our book, which is now obviously in the UK as well. I think they've got probably about 3,500 businesses registered around the world. So it's, it's growing. Mm. And I think that an organization like that allows people to have some sort of external accreditation. Mm. So it allows them to think, actually, this is what we think we're doing right. Is that something that can be recognized as a sort of association or a card mark in that way? Any of the proliferation of organizations that try and make things like that happen effectively change the way in which business is being viewed or interpreted. And so I think uh, the more the merrier in many ways. I mean, people worry about, well, do I do Blueprint or do I go B Corps or do I sign up to BITC or whatever? I'm a little bit ambivalent about You can take from different organizations the thinking. You can create something around your own organization and then find the right institution that mirrors mm. what you want to uh, to be associated with. So you get a great overview there. And actually, there's a, an indication there of something which was the, kind of the first major question, which is about how purpose drives culture. And you, yeah. you alluded towards uh, Lego and right. how they what uh, their purpose is to unlock children's creativity, which I remember when I was a kid, that uh, very much it unlocked yeah. my creativity. Um, maybe some other examples of how that's being utilised that you, you've maybe directly worked with yeah, as well. Sure. So, I mean, actually, there's a great uh, quote from Peter Drucker, actually, that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. Well, I've added a line to that, which is that actually culture gets its appetite from purpose. Mm. And I think that's absolutely right, in that if you you can have the best strategy in the world, but actually if the culture is is battling against that strategy, you'll never deliver it. If you think about how the culture is formed, that becomes based on the the character of the organisation and what the individual's purpose Mm. within that uh, wider corporate purpose is. Now, I have to be slightly careful because obviously we get approached by clients who are um, well-renowned in the public domain, 
that don't necessarily are not necessarily content with where they're at. Mm. So you'll forgive me if I don't necessarily name names in well, particular. Yeah, I mean, have you got any historic clients that you could name? Anything like that that you, that they've well, been kind of like? Yeah, them? I mean, I think, I, yes, I mean, but but even so, with, with them. But I mean, yes, I mean, if you take, for example, uh, work that we've done, we, we did a lot of work in the past uh, helping. Um, well, we had we had a range of companies. There was a financial institution. I'd be slightly careful, even with this. No, 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 that's fine. That's a, that's, I understand. After the financial crisis, there was a financial institution that came and was looking at setting up a new business in a particular part of the financial market, which was renowned for, as in their words, being dirty. Okay, so they knew that they were going to go into this market, and there was good sense for them to go into this particular part of the market. But they wanted to ensure that as they brought people together from different parts of the business and recruited new people, that they created what they wanted to be was the most ethical and values-driven proposition in that space. Mm. So what we had to work with them there was actually ensuring that they were creating a culture out of bits of people, uh, bits of organisations that had been affected very badly in the past. Now, the creation of that internal culture meant that once they were confident that they were meeting their own expectations, they were able, therefore, to go out and present themselves as the most ethical uh, opportunity, of rather, provider in that part of the marketplace. But I think um, they work very hard at that, um, and we work very hard with them walking through and helping individuals understand some of the decision-making process. And within that, there was a conflict. Uh, there was a new chief executive who had been brought in. Uh, the new chief executive found, let us describe it as a legal means of reducing their tax bill. Um, and we had to say, sorry, what are you talking about? It's not that it's legal. That's not the issue here. It's actually whether or not it's morally correct. And given the context and the environment that you've tried to get yourself out of, is that really the decision that you want to make? Mm. And between the group chief executive and the new chief executive, you know, there was a silence. And we had to be the catalyst to make mm. certainly the new chief executive understand that that wasn't going to be the way that business was going to be positioned. Um, now, interestingly, that person moved on within 18 months of the right. business being launched because there was the sense there was a mismatch. So mm. there are sensitivities in that way. But nevertheless, we've seen companies like that then carve out their part of the, the sector very well. In more discreet ways, we've been able to help people simply get over to the general public clarity around their purpose and clarity around their credentials. So with Virgin Atlantic, for example, we helped to um, manage the process which put their animated credentials into the in-flight movies with Richard Branson voicing what they were doing in terms of investing in different fuels and looking at recycling, etc., etc. Um, so sometimes it's about helping them with the clarity of purpose. Sometimes it's about getting that in a form that the public can understand and yeah. build the reputation up. Um, so there's a variety of different ways that obviously we work with companies. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, 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 John is a very humble person, but uh, I am going to mention the, uh, that the what the publisher put on the top of his uh, book, which is that there's a quote from uh, Sir Richard Branson of the Virgin Group saying, if you are building a business without purpose, not only are you missing the point, but you are most likely missing out on the journey, the excitement and the profit too. So it's great that you've, you've got that at the top yeah. there. And that, that's obviously somebody who represents that purpose uh, drive very well. I mean, I think, you know, Richard, 
you know, we had content from Richard, we had contact from Paul Pullman, people like Mark Price from Waitrose, tremendously, uh, he wrote the introduction. We had a range that we also wanted to cover across many of the sectors and companies that we worked with or that we worked in collaboration with on various things. Um, and I think that some of the great lessons will come from some of the emerging smaller businesses. So where you've got really passionate individuals creating the big tools, they're going to be the big businesses mm. of tomorrow. Um, and so although the book often, like so many books, you, you sort of concentrate on those that have created the great mm. value in their businesses and the great value in society, um, I wouldn't underestimate at all what is coming up through the roots of, of uh, the new businesses that are starting up. Um, there's some really exciting things going on. So that's uh, just uh, there's a couple of little points I'll do because that's the yeah yeah you're giving a natural seed into the, uh, the trends in the social enterprise the B Corp those are coming but I think one of the things that I just want to remember whilst I remember actually it has the, the book's not just something that's gone out there and disappeared in theatre it's I, I, I understand it's done quite well it got top ten <laughs> Amazon business books top yeah. three W H Smith. Yeah. So there's obviously been quite a bit of yeah, I mean, quite a good uptake. Nobody's more surprised than I am in a way. I shouldn't possibly say that. But I think that you don't know when you're writing something that's effectively a niche. I mean, I say it's a niche proposition. I think everybody should understand this. Yeah. Um, but you know, you don't know whether or not it's going to actually resonate and, and go very far. But we were delighted, yes. It got to number three in the W.A. Smith business book. Um, Charles, which is great. I think it's still in the top 10. Um, and in the Amazon category, it got to the top 10. You know, no and just to ask you before we move on, what was the actual direct inspiration yeah. for kind of you going right? Because writing a book is, uh, you know, it's not a small task. No, no I know. Um, so about 18 months ago, uh, I had a number of, I had more than one person ask me about some of the experiences rather like you yourself are doing and in particular they were individuals who weren't necessarily going to engage us as a business mm. but were just genuinely interested in how they could you know learn more about the subject matter um i was then approached by a company who said it would be sort of bad and i think i was getting you know as i say within a short period of time i had probably three or four approaches right. and i thought well perhaps this is the time to do it fortunately through the work that we've done um, you know, we could get input from the chief execs of many of mm. the best companies in, in the space, and also some less well-known ones, um, private equity people doing tremendous things and things like that. Um, but I also wanted to find a collaborator that I could bring in uh, another element to it. And Andrew Cave is a very experienced journalist, formerly the Telegraph uh, business editor for the US in, in America, a contributor to Forbes and Times and Telegraph now. And so I've sort of known Andrew a little while. We got together and thought, well, actually, Andrew has spent sort of 25 years observing the business sector and commenting and observing on what's happened in business. I spent almost 25 years working there trying to make companies change their behaviours. Could we combine those experiences and combine those connections to, to make something that would make sense? And so I think, uh, you know, that's how the book came about and we were delighted when he got that attention. Yeah, no, brilliant. Um, so, but back on uh, track a little bit, which is about trends in social enterprise and B Corps. And one of the things I find interesting with B Corps is that what it does is it gives it a guidance to business of how to act. And uh, one of the reasons why I say that, because businesses, especially the larger corporations, there is a part of them which they've been uh, kind of, uh, kind of, given the illustration that they're like psychopathic or sociopathic because they don't have, they don't literally have the ethics that humans are born with because 
they're, they're just this kind of organ, organism, but it doesn't have that. But one of the things, and so that's why, if they're allowed to go kind of too far off the track, they can some of the bad behaviours uh, can come out yeah. and be more likely. But what's interesting about things like B-Corp is it, why does it starts to program into the DNA of the organisation that, the, the, that it's much less likely that some of those behaviours will come out. And so what I'm, it's, it's fascinating that you're working in this field and I'd be interested in just general thoughts on the trends and what your yeah. thoughts on that are. Well, I mean, I think just to, to go back to your point there, the first thing that I would say is that certainly, I don't know the stats about this, the majority of B Corps at the moment, and B Corps may come back on me, but the majority of B Corps at the moment are what probably small to medium size businesses. Mm. There are larger businesses going through or have gone through that process, which is commendable, and that's great. Uh, and of course, I think that that will grow and that mm. will be enhanced as, as time goes on. Um, actually, my interpretation of the various schemes and opportunities for business to, let's say, get accreditation or frameworks mm. to, to their behaviours is that actually, you know, many people are attracted to a certain mechanism because it naturally fits where they're at or how they operate. So certain institutions will always attract perhaps the larger PLCs and multinationals, and that and they need to be helped on their journey through those institutions, whereas B Corps or others might attract different sides. Mm. However, I think the critical thing is that you, you do want a business to get, regardless of size or where it is, you want a business to get to the point where regardless of who's at the head of the business, the culture stays ethical and mm. stays the same. And I don't know um, whether or not Rather, what I was going to say is the, the, the mechanisms such as B4 or accreditation in some other way are certainly important in that because if somebody takes over a company that has a great reputation and legacy of working in a particular way, then why would you try and destroy that? Because mm. part of the value of the business will be based on those mm. values, credentials, and the reputation that's around that company externally. So if you were to be appointed as Chief Executive Marks and Spencers, for example, um, and you look at the great work they've done on a variety of genders over the last sort of 15, 20 years, built on a legacy of family ownership, etc., mm. etc., et um, you're not going to go into Marks and Spencers and decide to come out and back away from all those things because you will know fundamentally you'll be, you'll be taking value off the reputation and value off the, off the brand. And we've seen this actually happen where it's worked the other way around. If you look at the value that was stripped out of Volkswagen because of the mm. scandal there, or if you look just recently, you know, the complete collapse of Bell Pottinger. These mm. are extraordinary mm. demonstrations of where activity that has not met certain expectations externally, either government or public expectations, has led to massive loss or even the demise of, of, of global business. Mm. So actually, if you're a CEO worth your salt, and you come into a business that's got such a reputation, you're going to guard that jealousy. Mm. But most importantly, that should be guarded by everybody in the business. Mm. So I go back to the point that actually it's everybody sitting at that desk. Mm. In, it's everybody standing at a tiller saying this. It's everybody standing there saying, actually, you know, that's not acceptable behavior for this business. Mm. Because they are guardians of the reputation as much as the people at the, hop, the top in my way. And, of course, if you look at the longevity of CEOs and things of that kind, then often it's the people in the business will be in the business far longer than the chief executives will be. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think with all these external mechanisms, yes, fantastic, they have a place to pay. But actually, where that will be, where that is, um, the, 
held most strongly will be actually the people in every part mm-hmm. of the business footprint. Yeah, definitely. And so, what other sort of trend or trends would you could, could you highlight that you think? Well, I mean, I think one of the trends that we've seen, and I think there's still a way to go, is actually what I would describe as the spectrum between business on one side and charity on the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I started 25 years ago, it was very very the world was very simple in many ways. You know, there was business, and business did what business does, and there were charities, and charities did what charities do. And then you had the odd thing like a co-op or a John Lewis or whatever, which seemed you know, still business-orientated. Now, of course, it's not like that at all. You have this spectrum, and organisations play up across a much broader space in each of those spectrums. And I think, therefore, actually, what we'll get to will be the point where people won't necessarily even see it in that way. So walking down the high street, you won't necessarily consider that as a charity shop or main retailer. We'll get to the point where they're just retailers. Mm. You'll look at your service delivery around care, for example, and you won't know if it's the public sector, a charity, or a corporate delivering it, because actually the institution behind these services won't matter to a great extent. It will be the quality of the delivery and how that's perceived externally. So I would hope to see, personally, a greater... uh, I'm not one that sees everything going back into public ownership, but I do think there'll be a, a growth in what I would call the social space, mm. where an enhancement of social enterprise solutions, where you can actually churn you know, profit or surplus back into the issue that you're trying to address. And if you look then at what investors are looking for, and both impact investors or even philanthropic investors that want to see it put on a business case but don't necessarily want a financial return, that's the space where there'd be growth. Mm. Uh, and that's something which I think is, is great. I think with regards to, um, you know, there may even, actually to finish that off, there may even be government opportunities, certainly in the UK, to try and encourage that even more so through you know, tax breaks or whatever. That should be something that should be looked at. And then I think the other great thing which I say in the book, I, I genuinely believe, as many people do, that actually purpose and the rediscovery of purpose, both individually, as communities and in corporates and organisations, will be the biggest uh, most important non-technological advance we'll have this century because we've got to get back to thinking, what are we about? What are we about as individuals? What's the value in my life? What is, you know, what is the impact that I can have in my community? What is my legacy? How do I collectively get together with others through business or organisation to enhance and amplify that? And I think people are looking for purpose now. And so the rise of that in business is, again, just a reflection of the rise of that in ourselves as individuals, which is why we have so many different opportunities to you know, meditate, you know, go off, find ourselves, and goodness knows what else, because we're all concerned with you know, actually the inner self. Well, actually, the inner self feeds into the wider community sense of purpose as well. And would you say that where that kind of this desire to return to purpose is actually partially because that uh, in many countries we've kind of moved on from a religious-based society. Um, the religion or aspects of society kind of gave that purpose, and so it's kind of there in the, the society. Now that's drifted away, so now it's kind of like uh, we've got to return to that, or is it something else? Well, I think, I mean, there's no doubt the faith, regardless of what type of faith, for some people gives them a purpose in life. I would say that those are the vast majority of people of faith, faith more than give them a purpose, tends to give them a framework through which to live their life. So it's slightly mm. different, mm, right, okay. personally. Um, but I do think that what, what you're getting at is the fact that 
the more in which we um, have got into a situation where we know, certainly in the, you know, in the country that we're in, the Western Hemispheres, where we have access to everything, technology, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there is this great trend back to thinking, well, actually, what is the true purpose? It can't just be about greater consumption. And actually, the younger generation, particularly now, don't measure um, their life by basis of what they own so much. It's more about the experience. Mm. We know that through the work that we do in a variety of different ways. So people are looking for the experience. So we're even thinking about changes in sectors such as the luxury sector. Mm. The luxury sector, which has always in the past been, yes, there's been services there, but it's often been about, you know, have a better watch or have a better car mm. or have a gold-plated or whatever. That's not the case now because increasingly people are looking at the quality of the experience as a luxury in their life. So it might be about going and volunteering mm. in Africa. It might be going and doing some extraordinary, extreme challenge in the Arctic or whatever. It's an experiential thing. And that's because I think we as humans have now started to think better. We've consumed all this stuff. We've created this world. But actually, at the heart of what we are, what is our purpose? Now, for each and every one as an individual, you could go through a, a process and say, okay, my purpose is to help people in this way. Mm. Personally, I share it in the book, as Andrew does as well. Um, it took me years to find out what I really understand as my own purpose. But when I look back across my life, I realized that when that is aligned with the jobs and roles that I've mm. had, that's been where I've been happiest, and that's where I perform my best. Mm. And actually, I realized that my purpose in life, and it may sound very grand, is to encourage and allow people to maximize their own opportunity and the best they can do. And I think that's been through some of the charity initiatives I've created. It was the same when I encouraged my young soldiers in the army to do better. Uh, and I realized, sort of perhaps a little bit late, that actually what I like to do is provide people the opportunity to do better themselves. That's what I try and do. Now we do it with business and charities and others, but we try to do the same thing. We allow people to maximize their opportunity. You'll have a different opportunity. Andrew's sort of purpose is based upon informing the world and making sure that people have better information, therefore are capable of making greater decisions. And I think if we can get that sense ourselves, that informs the type of business you want to be a part of. Definitely. No, it's, uh, I, I definitely have a purpose. Like, really, it's my somewhat grand purpose is about, it's about human evolution and how we grow and learn as a, uh, as a, the species even and how I can contribute to that by through the understanding and engagement that I can give um, so just uh, you mentioned about Watcher we're coming to the end of, right. of this of this time yeah. um, so just maybe uh, finish on one sort of uh, challenge that you've seen in organisations and, and maybe also how you've you've already alluded to how you deal with that directly yeah. which is like through the gra- up so the percolation mm. sort of but can you give other us challenges. a bit uh, either other challenges or a bit of detail about how you've uh, done some of that? Well, I mean, just on the on the percolation bit, I mean, the critical thing is that you, once you've set a purpose and you've got clarity around the management team, they need help often driving it through the mm. organisation. And actually, there's therefore an employee engagement process that one needs to be able to go in there and help other people take ownership of that purpose. Purpose cannot sit just at the top table. It needs to be owned by everybody. Mm. Um, However, I think just to finish, I mean, the two other things which I think are worth commenting on. One is the short-termism, which is an issue in business particularly. So, um, you know, actually the, the, the drive and the requirement on many companies to report quarterly, etc., means that decision-making is not when it's done to hit those targets quarterly as opposed to necessarily the longer-term um, development 
that's perhaps best around the business or most ethical, most sustainable. And I think if you could get away from that short-termism, that would be very mm-hmm. helpful. And I think the other big issue we have in society is this uh, the, the issue around investment. So if somebody's trying to raise money for a great ethical business now, part of the issue is that you'll talk to investors who are instantly talking about getting their money back in four years' time. Mm. So they have no long-term view. They have no long-term commitment around the purpose of the business. Mm. And, and therefore, unfortunately, we have this society that's all, we're all geared around the quick or the short term. If you could get, certainly for, the, for those people trying to create purpose-driven um, businesses, a means of getting investment that wasn't just thinking, right, you haven't even set your company up, but I want to know what you're going to give me in four years' time when, mm. I, when I liquidate my ownership of it. Why would you try and exit from a business that's got a great purpose that you've put your heart and soul in simply because your investors want to extract in four years' time? So there are certain societal aspects that need to change, which I'm afraid are a little bit beyond me or my business, but they're certainly there that we can try and advocate and try and you know, comment on Definitely. Well, Ben, that's, uh, I think, is uh, something that we really need to work on. I, I'm, I'm interested and passionate about as well. So bringing this conversation to an end, uh, I think one thing that I'm definitely going to take away from this is that if culture does eat strategy for breakfast, then I love the fact that culture gets its appetite from purpose. Yeah, um, so I... Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I hope uh, the listeners and viewers have uh, similarly enjoyed it. And uh, so, John, if they want to find out more about you, connect with you, understand what you're doing, uh, social media platforms. Yeah, I mean, you yes, uh, even I. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. People can track me down there. Very happy. Or they can they can find me at Omnicom's 100 Agency here in London. Uh, we have presence in, in the US as well, but... Certainly happy to have a conversation with anybody about it. Yeah, and what, what just as Twitter, we've been on, been live streaming oh, on Twitter. Yeah. What's your Twitter? Uh, it's, it's at John, J O H N, Rit, W U R I T, Large. John Rit Large. Don't ask me why, but that's what it is. All right, okay. And if you want to find uh, me, Adam Woodall, uh, you can find me in similar places. Uh, it's at Adam Woodall on both uh, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. You can find uh, more of these uh, podcasts on the Inspiring Sustainability, uh, inspiring-sustainability.com website. And uh, I'll be continuing to uh, do these with other fascinating characters and uh, people are helping, helping either through, uh, particularly in this case, percolating with organizations being game changers. So uh, thank you, John. And it's been a fascinating conversation. And thank you for the listeners. This is the end of the Inspiring Sustainability Podcast. Thank you.